Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss a current or emerging issue. In this episode, Don Desjardins, Deputy Chief Economist at RBC, joins hosts Mike and Sean to discuss the uneven financial impact of the pandemic on Canadians and their increasing worries about affordability and inflation. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, everyone, to uh, the latest or this episode of Educated Conjecture, where my uh, my good friend Sean and I get to uh, have uh, guests on who are always smarter than us, always better informed than us, and help us through uh, some of the challenges of the day. Uh, Sean, how are you today? I'm well, Mike. Thanks for asking. I'm going to jump in with my uh, sort of... It's not really stat of the day. It's a couple of stats that I want to I want to point out, or a general trend that that we've seen uh, over the last year, uh, and then you can do yours and introduce our guests. Without sound good, great. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you know we run a uh, personal financial health index. Uh, we track it on a regular basis. We look at you know a number of items. How well are people how are people spending? Are people saving? Are they planning? Are they able to borrow? Are they basically getting mine in a number of categories? And I thought it was interesting to to look where we were December 20 versus December 21 and think about sort of we're on we're at a looking at an economy now that's burning hot enough that inflation has become a concern. Um, a lot of that's happened over the last year. And at the same time, pretty much whichever generation you look at in our data, uh, their health index has declined. Um, so right now, boomers sit at a, a net positive negative of 22, but they're down from 54%. So they know last year they were riding their their assets and stock values and saying things are the the uh, pandemic really hasn't been that bad. But every other generation's in the negative, including Gen Z at minus 36, who again are down year over year, and millennials minus 22, and Gen X minus 12. So there's a a disconnect. And hopefully we can talk to our guest a little bit of this between how people feel and how people are, are managing the storm versus some of the macroeconomic numbers. Oh, that's great, Mike. I was a little worried when you said riding their assets. Uh, I didn't know where you were going with that one, but it, but it was a it was a great great comment. Uh, <laughs> and my stat of the day is actually uh, also going to be financial related, which I think maybe gives people a hint of who our guest is if they didn't read the introduction already. Uh, and uh, I have two stats uh, to share. Uh, one uh, is actually uh, comes from. At the end of last year, when Parliament resumed, what we did was we asked Canadians of the 10 issues that they identified in the previous election campaign uh, that were that were most important to them at the time, what was, uh, as of the end of last year, the, the issue that they thought was most important for our leaders to address. And the number one issue far and away was, in fact, uh, affordability and the cost of living. And uh, that that signaled two things. One uh, was that uh, no longer was COVID-19 the dominant issue. And I think that was perhaps the first time we we, we saw that in our data over the last year and a half. Uh, The the second thing was was that it it really put into perspective how kind of average everyday people are are feeling about uh, things like inflation, the cost of living, because uh, we hear sort of what the the economists uh, are telling us and what the stats tell us, but they don't always jive with what what people are feeling. And I think your stat of the day, Mike, really uh, pointed to that. The other uh, stat I wanted to share uh, is that uh, four in 10 are worried that as a result of inflation, 
they might not have enough money to feed their family. Uh, that's a quite a, an alarming statistic, and it actually goes up to a slim majority of people with children in the household. So clearly, the the, the, the fear is 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 palpable, and uh, I think it's a it's a good time to introduce our guest, uh, who is Don Jardin, uh, who is vice president and deputy chief economist of Royal Bank. And Don and I actually spoke together a couple of weeks ago at an event that was being hosted by the uh, Oakville Chamber of Commerce, and RBC and Ipsos have have been invited. Uh, speakers to this event for the better part of a decade, uh, and and Don was able to to join that that event this year. Uh, Don has has worked uh, at RBC as as an economist for the last sixteen years. She's a key contributor to the macroeconomic forecast for Canada and the U.S. and is responsible for interest rate forecasts. That's it's sort of like predicting elections, isn't it, Don? Kind of a stressful <laughs> job. Uh, prior to joining RBC, she worked as a reporter for Bloomberg Financial News. And Don is homegrown. She's a graduate of the University of, of Toronto. So welcome, Don. And my first question to you is. Are things really that bad? I mean, I don't think things are bad, but inflation definitely um, is the highest it's been in about three decades. So from the perspective um, of people, you know, feeling those those price increases, it does feel kind of bad right now. I, I mean, we all go to the grocery store. We all know uh, when we get check out, we're kind of like, whoa, what's happened to me? Um, and I think we have to think about inflation by decomposing it a bit. You know, first of all, price increases we're seeing today, um, we're looking usually relative to a year ago. So that's sort of the reopening effect, if you will. You know, we were in the doldrums. Prices were, were falling or were not moving up much. Um, and then they've started to normalize. So that certainly is having an impact on these inflation rates. We're also, of course, suffering from a lot of um, capacity constraints because we are seeing supply chain distortions, um, which is putting a lot of pressure. You know, when we think about some of these statistics and the fact that from the financial health perspective, people are feeling a little shaky, you know, demand still remains very, very high, very hot. You know, we look at things like uh, where people stand compared to when we entered this pandemic. And the latest stats suggest that there's about $300 billion, which is a lot of money, um, in excess savings for, for from households. So now they're starting to, to spend some of that money. And so there's a lot of demand in terms of there has been, uh, of course, for goods throughout the pandemic. You know, that was the one thing we could get our hands on. Um, and we're starting to see we have been seeing the, this increase in the demand for services. So these are putting some upward pressure. You know, we, we just don't have the supply um, at this stage. So as we look forward, you know, we're going to see some of this reopening impact. It's going to fade away. You know, that that's, we're going to get a more normal increase in terms of prices. Um, but I still think that at least in the near term, uh, we're going to be faced with these bottlenecks in terms of supply. Um, we're also... While it's not evident in Canada yet, you know, I think there is the prospect uh, that as our labor market remains very tight, we start to see wage increases. So all to say, I think we're, we're kind of in the, the worst period in terms of high inflation rates. They will come down, but I think we should all anticipate that inflation will remain higher than before the pandemic. You mentioned the, the $300 billion mm-hmm. in savings. Any idea how, how it's spread across 
generations or, you know, the homeowners versus non-homeowners, like it, maybe that's some of the disconnect that people are feeling is that um, seniors with pensions and money in the, in the stock market uh, are, are, have done very well and have a lot um, and others are, are struggling. I was going to ask the same thing, Mike, you know, what proportion of households are holding that 300 billion? (laughs) (laughs) But it's as you'd expect, right? The higher income households um, are really accruing a lot of excess savings. And you have to think about it in the context of a lot of these households are the ones that were able to maintain their jobs throughout the pandemic. You know, they were the ones who were able to work remotely. So, their interruption in terms of their work uh, wasn't so great, but they couldn't spend it. Uh, so they were putting it um, aside. As you move down sort of the wage scale, if you will, the income scale, certainly, yes, government supports helped. Of course, they help people make ends meet, but these are more likely the people who were unable to work during the pandemic. Um, certainly the low wage group, that's where we're still seeing those job losses persist. You know, yes, Canada has fully recovered the number of people employed, uh, even as of last September, even with the hiccup that we experienced in January, we're still slightly to the, to the positive side. But where the job losses remain concentrated are at the lower wage end of the spectrum. So yes, these are the people that are feeling that pressure in terms of these higher prices, be it for food, uh, be it for energy, and of course, be it for, for housing um, and all of the shelter related costs that we're experiencing right now. Do the macroeconomic trends then in some ways start to mask the microeconomic realities that that households are, are facing? And I guess our, our banks and, and the central banks very aware of that, or do they have to kind of create policy based on the overall trends? Well, I think, you know, when we think about the central bank and what what their role is, I mean, they have one very blunt tool, <laughs> interest rates, <laughs> not, not, no other you know tools necessarily uh, in their bailiwick, whether or not they're using traditional policies, just raising interest rates or using non-traditional policies. They're still working on, you know, the cost to borrow. That, that's their tool. Um, so when they're looking, I think, at where we are right now in terms of, of the economy overall, first of all, as I said, you know, labor market conditions in some areas look extraordinarily tight. In others, we still have, you know, some, some slack. When we look at output, you know, as of the end of 2021, all of that last lost output that we suffered during uh, the pandemic is recovered. And I think even though first quarter of 2022 probably going to be a little bit soft because we've had these restrictions throughout January, thinking the momentum will remain pretty firm, it means that there's not a lot of excess slack in the economy. So from a central bank's point of view, if you've got demand, you know, remaining and supply, you know, trying to catch up, what happens is you do get these upward pressure on prices. And of course, as our central bank is really just targeting that. You know, they want to keep inflation in their one to three percent range at the optimum at two percent. You know, what do they do? Well, they start to try to lean into slowing that economy a little bit, trying to get some of the the froth in some of those sectors, you know, uh, to to be tempered. Um, So it does end up being the case that they have this tool. They're looking at the overall macro economy. and, And yes, you know, acknowledging that it's not 
completely broad-based in terms of this recovery, but there is a general sense that pressures in the economy will continue to heat up if they keep interest rates at extraordinarily low levels. And so it's for this reason, I think, the Bank of Canada will uh, be raising their policy rates. Um, you know, we just heard from them in January. Um, you know, they said, okay, you know, our forward guidance, uh, we don't have to, we can dispense with that because we've already, you know, achieved that goal. Meaning they're quite likely going to be raising rates in the near term, um, could come in March, could come in April, but definitely the case, I would say that the Bank of Canada is looking to just temper, take a little bit of that um, upside momentum off of growth. And, and this, as I say, is the only tool they have. So yes, we do have pockets of weakness. Absolutely. I think your surveys are showing us that. Um, but by and large, the economy itself, you know, you do need to have uh, some some lever. Um, and that's what they're going to be using, that interest rate. I, I can't help but think some of it is, to your, your point about we've had uh, l- low interest rates for a long time, is really about <laughs> expectations and the public's view that these are where they should be. Because and I'll date myself completely. Um, when I got my first mortgage, uh, it was at 9.5%. Mm-hmm. And I got a five-year term. And my dad's advice was grab it for as long as you can, because it wasn't a couple years before that, that we were in well into double digits for mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so if you're my age, and I'm 58 and and older, you have that perspective that things were much worse. But honestly, if you're 35 to 40, you've never known interest rates over 2%, I don't think. And you probably at that time weren't in the market. And there's a whole group of younger consumers who've never seen interest rates over, you know, over where they are today, right? Like they've just always been mm-hmm. low. And the, I guess we're not in any fear you're saying of going back to 9.5% mortgage rates, at least in the short run. We don't can't predict the future. Um, but we still have a challenge with this uneven return to the to the economy for some people. My boss and I often tease our younger colleagues about what? Like, you don't know what high interest rates are. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, wrote a paper about inflation and was sort of that context to say, you know, inflation means different things to different people. <laughs> and I agree, you know, they, they, we are going to see higher interest rates, but are we ever going to be going to that five, six, seven percent rate policy rate that we had? Yeah. You no, know, it's unlikely. And certainly when we think, you know, what, why, why is that? Um, we do have inflation targeting. Back then we didn't. Yeah, we learned. Um, yeah. So we so we've have, you know, a pretty regimented um, inflation uh, policy in many, you know, most industrialized countries. Inflation at or below 2% is sort of the standard. Um, And I think that prevents how far we see interest rates go up as well. When we think about, you know, what is the interest rate based on? You know, it's sort of based on the capacity of your economy to grow. And so we look at a lot of things like labor force, we look at productivity, all of these things, these potential growth rates, they are also lower than they were back in the day. And we did see these high interest rates. I suppose the argument is always fascinating between, you know, the millennials and the boomers. The boomers are griping about 10, 15 percent interest rates. And the millennial responds by saying, yeah, but the house was two to three times your income. Yeah. Now it's, you know, seven, seven or eight. Uh, so, yeah. you know, everybody has has their, their poison to, to, to swallow. Um, you know, Don, you, it's it's been decades now since the since the target inflation rate is two is percent in Canada. Why not one? Why not zero? Help me understand that. 
Well, I think the thing is, if you're if you're going to go down that route, you're going to have to use your interest rate policy um, to be able to achieve that. So, you know, is it uh, worth going to negative interest rates, for example, when you have to torque the economy? How high do you want rates uh, to go to get it to this zero? So I think it's always, you know, it's it's a bit of um, a balancing act, I think, for central banks. Um, you know, can we how do we construct policy so that we don't have to go into sort of these unknown territories? Now, I can't say that anymore, of course, because the European Central Bank has been at a negative interest rate uh, for quite some time, um, as we know. So so it's always these types of things that I think, you know, you they're trying to put it at a rate that allows them some flexibility and so, some amplitude in terms of how they conduct policy. So I think that's really what where where they've settled on these 2% rates. How well do you think we're prepared in a, as a country to move from this, and we're not fully anchored in resource and extraction, but move from what we used to be into this data-driven digital economy that, that seems to be where everything is headed? Whereas a lot of our value still comes out of the ground. And, and the world seems to be shifting or is shifting, I guess is a better way. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at Canada, um, you know, we've got some some great things uh, going on, some great uh, innovations going on. I think a lot of the, the things that we're kind of looking at and thinking, you know, it's also retaining them in Canada and commercializing them here. Often you see, OK, you know, we sold, uh, we exported um, this IP, but then when we're trying to use that, we're, we're importing some of that. So it is, I think, you know, it's not that we don't have the raw material, so to speak, uh, to become uh, this innovation economy. It's more figuring out how do we, as an economy, as a country, you know, really capitalize on it, keep it within the country and then develop it and export that um, mm-hmm. you know, more widely spread. So, I mean, those are our challenges, definitely, um, you know, for Canada. Um, you know, we look at our investment in research and development, you know, again, lagging some other countries, but doesn't mean we can't get there. Um, so, you know, I think the transition is well, as you said, well underway. It's 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 well away, underway yeah. across, across the globe. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic from the perspective of, we have it. We just need to figure out how to ramp it up and commercialize it and then be the, the sort of the supplier, if you will. So a worrisome parallel, if I, again, I'll date myself and go back to, you know, arguments about why do we send our raw resources around the world and not refine them here? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, if we're doing it with IP and our digital strengths, uh, our data strengths, um, seems to be a trend for us. But, I mean, certainly that, you know, and that's when we look forward into a government's you know, you know, how do we lean into this idea of a growth economy and, and how do, can governments, you know, really work to to foster that? What kind of infrastructure do they need to put in place? What kind of taxation policy? And those are huge. I just think these are huge yeah, yeah. issues, certainly, uh, you know, probably beyond our scope today. But nonetheless, you know, these are the types of issues uh, that we need to be thinking about and, and need our, our governments to be you know, leaning into. 
I'd like to pick up on a, on a point you made earlier, Don, about labor markets. And, uh, you know, Alan and I are acutely aware that we're coming up to review season, Mike. Uh, and, you know, inflation's really bad. And, you know, obviously businesses are going to be facing a lot of pressure from their employees to to respond to both the great resignation and inflation. What's the advice, you know, for, for business leaders here? Do you just, you know, because it's, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if they – you know, on mass, decide to give four or five percent more to their staff. We will continue to have mm-hmm. inflation problems, and that will perpetuate. So, how how does that cycle get broken? Yeah, I think what we're seeing. I mean, the data is so interesting here in Canada. Is that while we are seeing extraordinarily high levels of job vacancies, and and outside of January, we have seen jobs being created. Um, our wage data isn't showing a significant pickup as they are south of the border. So it's really very, in a way, it's kind of puzzling. You know, when we look at it over the two years, we're probably running at two and a half percent. Now, again, these are rates that are higher than we were experiencing before, but but they're still not what we're seeing, you know, in the U.S. where it's five, six, seven percent, depending on which industry. Um, and so I think in terms of when we look forward, um, you know, for employers, I think they're doing a few things. And this is, again, you know, looking at the Bank of Canada, what they what they glean from businesses. And I'm sure you glean similar things is what are businesses saying? Well, they're 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 very worried about labor shortages and their ability to meet demand. But what are they doing? Well, they're investing. So they're investing in a few things. And I think it's getting to that to the other question of sort of that digital economy. They're um, automating where they can. Now, we know. We can automate some things, many things we do need humans for, um, but they're also trying to harness the data to get in touch with their clients and to figure out new ways of doing things. So I think from the business perspective, we're going to have that kind of tension. We have demand uh, for wage increases from the labor force. You're going to have businesses trying to pivot and, and increase their productivity and efficiency, sometimes through technology. Um, And so I think that as we move forward, you're going to have more people coming to Canada. You know, our immigration targets are picking up. We had that, you know, difficult year in 2020 where we just didn't have people (laughs) coming in. Uh, So you're going to have increase in supply of that labor. All of this, of course, takes time and the mismatch between who needs to the employee and what the employee can actually supply to that employer will continue. But I think going forward, you know, we'll start to see a, a, a different equilibrium um, evolve. So that's sort of where you get to the point, I would say, where you're not worried about wage growth accelerating too sharply. But I think in the near term, you know, there is the risk that we do say wage increases. I mean, companies are trying to attract or retain talent that they have in order to meet demand. Because I think, and I'm going to touch huge amounts of wood on this, is the economy <laughs> is going to be um, more fully reopened on a sustained basis as we go forward. I think Omicron, what it, it showed us was that, yeah, you know, there might be future infections where we have to do some kind of pivot and, and restrictions, but not nearly as deep or as long as what we saw during previous episodes of infection spread. Are you worried at all, Don, about our ability to understand where we are today based on data? It, writ large. I mean, I, I look at our public opinion data and, and the world changed with the pandemic and it is changing, continues to change. And I often wonder, does um, any data from 
prior to March 2018 matter anymore because our reference point is 2018. And I and I wonder, do you, do you get that sense at all? Are you concerned about it at all that the combination, the acceleration that COVID caused, just, just things like work from home, the increased use of technology, um, the, you know, <laughs> we live without people, so let's, then let's, let's automate more. The, 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 all of the things that were, were happening on a slower, steady pace happened overnight makes it much harder for us to trust um, the anchors that we used to have. Um, or is it different in financial, the financial world? No, I mean, I, I do think the world has changed uh, quite considerably. I mean, the fact that we're doing, you know, this and and before we, we might be sitting somewhere and, and having this discussion and seeing other people. I mean, definitely the world has changed. How people conduct business has changed. Um, now, in terms of the data, I mean, I just think there's a lot more of it out there, um, a lot more sort of quote, quote, real time data. You know, mm-hmm. you look at things like Open Table and they produce data saying how many people are in the restaurants. Um, our own data at RBC, you know, we've been able to to harness some of it to look at, you know, what are consumers doing and be able to look at it at a much more timely manner than we have historically. It was always like a few months and be like, okay, well, this is <laughs> a very authoritative yeah. saying, well, this is where we're at. But in fact, that is where we were at. Now we yeah. can kind of look at data. So I think, you know, the data, the ability to, to use data to think about how, you know, consumers are behaving, how businesses are behaving, I think that allows us to, to make uh, inferences about what, you know, what's coming ahead. I mean, I don't think all of the economic motivations and models are broken. Um, I think they're still there. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, it, it, it's more nuanced than it ever was, I think. And, and it is complicated. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a complicated time to try and rebuild that model in your head that says, okay, now if this does this, what do these yeah. other components naturally do? And I and I worried it's going to be forever complicated like that, that we're always going to be we're never going to sit down and go, okay, we have a model that'll work for the next five years. We're always going to be going, well, A, there's new sources of data and B, something else has changed. So, you know, our models get shorter and shorter or they're constantly in evolution. Yeah. yeah which is not, you know, it keeps it fresh and interesting. <laughs> you know, we don't employed. want to have those old models and be like totally bored. We need some. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's no norm against which to compare anymore, I suppose. No, it's, it's the, the norm last month. The norm, Today's norm is tomorrow, right? Sort oh, of. I know. Yeah, our, our charts, even. I mean, being the the geeky economist, you know, we love having the charts, but now you have to do everything annually because you're like, yeah, I can't show that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're not we're not going to be able to escape a conversation with a with a, an economist without talking about the housing market. Uh, we do a lot of research here at <laughs> uh, at Ipsos for real estate boards, development industries, etc. So I, I I thought we'd uh, take an opportunity to to pick your brain about this. Um, yeah. How how concerned are you about the housing market? And if you're concerned, is it about affordability? Is it about a bubble? Is it about lack of supply? Maybe it's all of those things, but if yeah. you were to prioritize them, perhaps, what uh, what would you say to that? I mean, I think it's the supply story. It's been one, um, you know, our, our analyst, Robert Hogue, has been speaking about for many, many years. It, it's this idea that, you know, 
we're a country uh, that's growing in population. Hey, we're one of the very few, so we're, we're quite chuffed about that, of course, you know, getting our labor market growing. Um, but having said that, um, when we look at the data, what it, it's consistently showing us is that, yeah, we see lots of cranes and we see, you know, lots of, of um, activity in terms of construction. Uh, but when you look at it, at the end of the day, what's available in the market, you know, it's just not not sufficient supply. And certainly that is one of the things the pandemic has. I mean, I have to say that to me was one of the most surprising parts of this whole thing was when, you know, you look at the the pandemic, for goodness sake, and suddenly home sales every month, higher, 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 higher. And you're like, OK, what did I miss there? <laughs> and so, you know, you saw demand for homes because, yeah, we might want to move out of the city, big city I'm living in, or I might need more space. And it all makes sense. But at the same time, if you had a blank sheet of paper, I don't think you ever would. Well, maybe some thirty-five percent increase in real estate, and you know, yeah, they, yeah, no one sees that coming. Yeah, no. not 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 something I would have uh, envisioned. But having said that, it did. We saw this demand uh, persistently increase. Yeah, the supply wasn't there, um, and, and that continues to be a very supply-constrained market, um, really uh, across the country. Um, and of course. Our old supply demand curves tell us what happens, right? Prices go up significantly. And when you look at double digit increases in prices, kind of takes your breath away. And of course, affordability conditions deteriorate. So I guess, yes, to all of your <laughs> your concerns. Um, I do think that, you know, when we think about the future, we're gonna see, you know, I think things will see more supply coming. Some people will look to, to sell their homes. We will see all of these housing starts, you know, actually make it to completion. Um, and so we'll start to see some supply coming to the market. But you're going to face that off against just persistent demand, right? I mean, immigration is is going to be ramping up. So we're going to have a natural demand uh, for these homes. So, that, so the demographic factors, you know, are keeping demand um, positive or more growing and, and we're going to see supply coming. So what it suggests to us is that it's not, you know, so much that we're going to see a, a sharp change in market conditions. It's going to be more that perhaps we see a, a slowing in the pace of sales and, and a slowing in the pace of house price appreciation. Right, so right. in our view, it doesn't spell ooh disaster. We're going to see big you know, for some people, it be sad, right, not to hear the prices are going to go down. <laughs> but but, uh, but in general, we feel that it will continue to just grow more slowly, which, you know, a little more reasonable uh, gains in prices going forward. And in the meantime, uh, because supply takes decades, you know, mm -hmm. to, to come, if we just think about first-time homebuyers, for example, those entering the market, should we be doing more for them, I guess is the first question. Uh, and if so, what would that be? I think the government is already, you know, trying to help um, first-time home buyers get into the market using a variety of tools. But I think we also have to think of it in the context of, you know, what's reasonable to do. We don't want people to become too over-leveraged um, because even though we anticipate that prices will continue to, to move up, uh, you can get these events, these I don't want to call them black swans because they seem to be happening all the time. But but these events, which causes, you know, a, a 
a negative shock to either the labor market or the financial markets. So, so I think there is that. We don't want to generate financial stability risks uh, by doing, you know, giving people um, too much ability to get levered up. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it is definitely a, a fine balance uh, when you're walking through this uh, as as politicians, um, you know, but I, even as people who are looking at, you know, what's reasonable um, in terms of getting people into the housing market. I also kind of think it's sort of interesting that we have this sense and it is definitely North America, you know, you need to own your home. You need to be in that that game, if you will. You know, you look at many European countries and many people, most people rent. So, so it's just a different mindset. So the supply side of that should help us, right, get some of this more um, affordable housing um, into the market, just getting that going. And, and so I, I would say, you know, yes, stuff is being done to help them. I, I think you just have to be somewhat cautious as we move forward. It's going to be tough to convince people, not convince people, to see a shift to renting for a generation mm-hmm. that's grown up going, your, one of your best investments is a home. Absolutely. Uh, right. Like this, the, the, the sheer gains that people have made and yes. ha- is it's um, and it's not even currently. I mean, my, my parents bought their first home for five thousand. Yeah. It went through this. They bought a farm. It grew again. Right. Like every everything they bought in southern Ontario just mm-hmm. over time was probably their best investment. And uh, that's a that's a long, long trend to undo in people's minds. If Sean's going to ask about the existential short term sh- threat of housing. I'm going to ask about climate change. Oh uh, <laughs> uh, I, so and how do I ask it with not loading the dice against you? Um, <laughs> um, so let's let's assume we can achieve our goals of reducing carbon and, and we can meet our our. And this is a big assumption based on the history of make, setting goals on climate change. But let's assume we do. Does it does it lead to growth? Does it hurt us? Is it only achievable with a lot of government intervention and spending? What are, you, what are your thoughts on on the path forward on that? Well, you know, it's a big uh, transition. Actually, we did uh, release a report um, late last year on that, and you know, calling it the two trillion dollar transition. And, and yeah, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of changing of behavior. Because you know, sure, you know, emitters have to change behavior, but so do we as people, mm-hmm. right? So so there's a lot of different components and it's also, you know, what is the sort of the the cost or the burden of that cost? How do we share that out between government, business and Canadians, people? Um, so these are the, you know, the big questions uh, that, that we have to face. And so, you know, you don't want to pin it on one particular element too much. Right. You need to, to figure out that right balance um, in terms of, of achieving these goals. Um, but I think, you know, and I mean, I turn it back to you with your polling. I mean, I think Canadians really, you know, I don't know. Will they uh, endure the costs of doing that? Will they change their behaviors um, in order to achieve that goal? Because I don't think it can be a one one size or, or one element rather solution i think it's got to be the three elements together yeah the, the the problem right now is about eight and ten say i'm doing my part and it's time for government and business to step up in part because i think we've told them over the last two decades it's a problem that we can solve 
with little adjustments here and little adjustments there mm -hmm. to get them politically on board to the notion there's a problem. But we need to very quickly, I think, shift to a conversation about I don't think we'll solve it till we go from climate change to climate progress and we start talking about the gains we've made, but we need to switch to things that can be done as opposed to um, definition of the problem. Don, I have one final question for you. It's very self-interested. <laughs> is, is, this, is this about inflation and, and your review, Sean? Yeah, how much uh, is my raise this year? So, um, so no, it, 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 well, <laughs> I, I'm going to Vegas in May, and I'd like to know if I should buy my U.S. dollars now or wait a couple of months. <laughs> I see, I see. Well, you know, the currency has been doing um, okay, uh, bobbling in a range. And you know what, Sean? I'm going to have to, like, say it's going to bobble in that range oh, for a little okay. bit further. So, you know, this is a, a an answer, non-answer. Um, you know, we, we have it. Maybe a little bit each month then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Average That's in. my bets. Average yeah. in. Um, yeah, I mean, the Canadian dollar um, has benefited from the fact that the Bank of Canada is expected to raise interest rates. And the Fed now is, is also expected to do so. And, of course, oil prices moving up. Good for Canadian dollars. So as we move forward, you know, I think probably not going to see as many gains on the oil price. So so I might take a little bit of the edge off the Canadian dollar, perhaps a little bit lower, but not looking for anything too dramatic. And and will that spread uh, in interest rate increases, you think, diverge between Canada and the U.S.? Or do you think we'll kind of go in lockstep with them and then the dollar kind of stays yeah, the same as a result? Yeah, I mean, the Fed seemed to be lagging Canada um, until recently when they said, oh, my goodness, we have an inflation problem. we got to get going here. Um, so, so uh, yeah, we have them both moving up uh, interest rates over uh to the end of 2023, uh, by about one and a half percentage points. So, not again, not a very um, sexy story, I'm afraid. But very helpful. Unless you have another question, Sean, I, I think we've taken more than enough of Don's time. I knew this would be the case. It was never in jeopardy, but she kept our streak of having smart people on uh, <laughs> Absolutely. alive. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, we would love to get you back sometime. I was going to say maybe when there's a major economic or social story, but that seems to happen every other day. So, <laughs> so anyway, just pick a time halfway through the year and, and, and see if you can come back and, and keep us informed on where things are going. But thank you very much for uh, spending the morning with us. Thanks, oh, Don. thank you. It was really great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of public opinion and informed insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.